In episode 449 with the incredible Dr. Zach Bush, we go deep into what will truly save the planet and humanity right now. What's stopping you from healing? The truth about who you are. How to heal on a cellular level, the gifts of the pandemic, and so much more. The following episode of The Melissa Ambrosini Show is ad-free and uninterrupted. Welcome to The Melissa Ambrosini Show. I'm your host, Melissa, best-selling author of Mastering Your Mean Girl, Open Wide, and Comparisonitis. And I'm here to remind you that love is sexy, healthy is liberating, and wealthy isn't a dirty word. Each week, I'll be getting up close and personal with thought leaders from around the globe, as well as your weekly dose of motivation so that you can create epic change in your own life and become the best of yourself possible. Are you ready, beautiful? Hey, beautiful, and welcome back to the show. I am so excited about this episode because I have the incredible Dr. Zach Bush back for a second time. I got him back because he truly is one of the most eloquent, poetic, intelligent minds on the planet right now. He has this innate ability to share deeply spiritual and esoteric topics blended with the science and delivers it with so much love, humility, and makes it digestible. It is such an art. And he is, oh, as you will hear, such an amazing human being. His words are a soothing balm to my soul. And I truly believe he is the embodiment of love and light. And for those of you that have never heard of Dr. Zach Bush, he is a physician specializing in internal medicine, endocrinology, and hospice care. He is an internationally recognized educator and thought leader on the microbiome as it relates to health, disease, and food systems. He founded Seraphic Group and the nonprofit Farmers Footprint to develop root cause solutions for human and ecological health. His passion for education reaches across many disciplines, including topics such as the role of soil and water ecosystems in human genomics, immunity, and gut-brain health. His education has highlighted the need for a radical departure from chemical farming and pharmacy. And his ongoing efforts are providing a path for consumers, farmers, and mega industries to work together for a healthy future for people and the planet. His work in for-profit and non-profit arenas is creating avenues for collaborative action for all stakeholders in our global community, for a regenerative future, for health, for the planet, and for our children. And for everything that we mention in this deep and amazing episode, head to the show notes. That's melissaambrosini.com forward slash 449. Now let's bring on the amazing Dr. Zach Bush. Zach, welcome back to the show. I am so excited to have you here again for a second time. Your first episode was episode 358, where we spoke about gut health, coronavirus, and supplements, and so much more. But I'm so excited to have you back here. But before we dive in, can you tell us what you had for breakfast this morning? I can. I had a pretty amazing one that actually is something that I eat almost on a regular basis at this point, which is sourdough bread with a German mustard with avocado, sea salt, 
sauerkraut and sprouts on top. That's pretty much my go-to. <laughs> Yum, that sounds delicious. And where are you in the world right now? I am in California at the moment. Beautiful, beautiful. Now, like I said before, this is your second time on the show and I'm so grateful to spend time with you. You are such a beautiful human. The work that you're doing in the world is so incredible and I want to dive into all of that. But what is really lighting you up right now? What is setting your soul on fire? Hmm. I think that we are ready for a massive constitutional change in the human structure. And I feel that at the biologic level. My laboratory and my clinic for the last 15 years have been really focused on how do we move from a, a state of disease to a state of thriving. And a lot of that comes down to how much light can we actually hold inside of a human cell. And so a lot of my excitement is that we are starting to see human biology through the lens of biophysics which is giving us a whole new opportunity to think about the full potential of humanity as we learn to contain more light within every cell that would compose this body of ours. And as we hold more light, it can actually create a phase change in our overall biology, certainly, but more importantly, perhaps how we actually resonate in the larger context of the cosmos or the universe around us. And I think a lot of times we touch on these kinds of subjects with the words such as consciousness or you know, spirituality. But interestingly, biophysics is kind of slamming into our whole concept of spirituality and God and all of these seemingly abstract concepts that we've had over time that are very important to our own experience. People have a spiritual experience and then you know, come to adopt uh, this adapt or abstract world that we would then look to. Biology and biophysics are starting to collide with that as we start to really understand the mechanisms by which matter really emerges from the vacuum around us and how matter then is, is coded by the electromagnetic field resonance rather than genes and kind of the biologic processes that we receive from mom and dad and things like that. So as we start to see ourselves more as a quantum physics phenomenon rather than just some sort of Newtonian biology that is following some sort of old math or old science, we are starting to merge our understanding of this kind of spirituality consciousness world with our understanding of resonance fields and how biology emerges from these things. And so it gets me very excited as I look around a world that looks too broken, too tortured, too traumatized to heal. It gives me great hope that all of that could be reversed in an instant if we can make this phase shift of our own relationship to not just the nature that we can see around us, but more excitingly, perhaps the nature that's invisible around us. Absolutely. So beautiful. So where do we start? Where do we start on a personal level? Like that all sounds so inspiring. And I'm so glad that you have such hope because with everything that's gone on in the world over the past couple of years with the pandemic and, you know, with just what's going on in the soil and these big companies and these corporations, like it sometimes can feel like, how are we going to turn this ship around? But I love that you have the hope that it can happen. So, where can we start on an individual level? Yeah, for me and our clinic team that have kind of self-organized over the last decade, we've really been focused on understanding what are the lifestyle events that occur to support this resonance frequency or the light energy within a human cell. And that begins at nutrition. The way in which we interact with food is exactly the way that we release light energy from the carbon chains that we consume. So our, the only two fuels that 
will actually create energy within the human body are glucose or long-chain carbohydrates or fatty acids. So you got carbohydrates and fats as your only two fuels. When we think about the topic of nutrition, unfortunately, over the last kind of 30 years, the field has been co-opted by a whole story about the importance of protein and all this. But ironically, protein is not a fuel for any cell in the human body and has to be turned into glucose or sugar before it can be used in the human body. And so about 80-85% of the protein that we consume in Western civilization gets immediately converted to glucose so that it can then be utilized as fuel. So the glucose and the fatty acids that would become our fuel actually cannot be liberated inside the human structures. They actually rely on the tiny little bacteria-like guys that live inside of our cells called mitochondria. And those mitochondria, these tiny little bacteria, there's like 200 for every human cell. A human neuron has 2,000 mitochondria in it. So there's this huge population of these little guys living inside your cells. The total body of the human is now thought to hold somewhere around 14 quadrillion mitochondria. Massive number. And that mitochondria is capable of taking those long chains of carbon, glucose or fatty acids, and a single enzymatic step, it turns it into the exact same molecule. And so we argue about, should we have low-carb diets? Should we have low-fat diets? Should we have high-fat diets? Should we have high-carb diets? It's a ludicrous conversation when it comes down to actual cellular function because they both turn into the exact same molecule in one enzyme step in the mitochondria. So as it enters the mitochondria, it's all acetyl-CoA. And that acetyl-CoA, again, is a long-chain carbon that then gets to be broken down one carbon at a time, ultimately to release carbon dioxide through our breath and through our sweat and through our urine. And in so doing, it releases light energy with every carbon bond broken. And so you can think of long chain carbons as batteries. And so when you sit down to a whole food plant-based meal with great carbohydrates and fat combinations and all that, and you start to break those apart, you're literally releasing the light energy that came through photosynthesis of the plants that, that you're now consuming. So photosynthesis literally took carbon dioxide and turned it into long chains. And now your mitochondria are breaking down those long chains to release the light energy that photosynthesis put into play. And so in this beautiful way, plants are the battery of the world we live in. And so when we think about you know, consuming animals instead, the animals are lacking a lot of the you know, complexity and diversity of nutrients that are coming alongside of those fuels. So that's one of the challenges of, of that. But the second one is that you're now two times removed from the carbon energy of the sun that, that you're really trying to. And so we see inefficiencies in that system. So it takes a whole lot of grain and legumes and everything else to pound into a cow to get a, a pound of beef. And so you end up using a whole ton of light energy that's never going to get to the end consumer. So when we look at a population of 7.8 billion people, I get excited about the possibility of we could get more light into every human we can get them closer to photosynthesis. And that's you know one of the really neat concepts around moving towards a plant-based diet is you're literally getting closer to the sun. I love that. Have you seen any data on some disadvantages of adopting a predominantly plant-based diet? Absolutely. Nutrition is one of the most, you know, I would say divisive topics that's out there in the science world, right? And so you'll find articles on you know, the terrifying consequences of meat, or you'll find the terrifying consequences of legumes or terrifying consequences of kale, like you, you name it, you're going to find an article on there that is, is perturbing the situation out there. And the reason for that 
is because we have a very poor understanding of the concept of nutrition in the first place. And so, you know, when you start to read about the dangers of a plant-based diet, they tend to revolve around not enough protein and not enough things like vitamin B12. And so then we get this thing in our head that B12 comes from meat. And in fact, there's not a single cell in a cow that can make B12. The only place that B12 comes is actually from the bacteria that are in the gut of the cow or in the gut of the human. And so uh, that's where a lot of our misperceptions come from, is not understanding the origin story of the nutrients that we consume. And so for that, we end up with a lot of dogma, a lot of old science, a lot of, you know, I would say, dueling half-truths out there in the nutrition world. And so that's why I like boiling it down to the simplicity of what is the mitochondria actually going to do with that energy? How do you actually get the energy to release from food? And there, there's far less, you know, competition for, for debate. You know, everybody agrees the mitochondria are the only things that can actually turn our food into fuel. We all agree at the scientist level now that we can't actually liberate those nutrients without the microbiome and ultimately the mitochondria doing their hard work there. So at this point, when you start to look into what, what about you, you know, so, okay, the science disagrees, but maybe you've tried a plant-based diet. As you're listening to this podcast, you're like, I tried going vegan or I tried going raw or came up one of these things. And one of the things, red flags there is that when you adopt a food concept as your identity, you've immediately weakened your whole position. And so I want to remind everybody that you cannot be vegan. You have to be you. And, and to then adopt your, yourself as an identity of some abstract concept of food, this is where a lot of the dis-ease happens in the body. And you start to look outside of yourself for health and you say, well, I'm eating all of this vegan food. Why don't I feel better? It's because you have removed yourself, your intrinsic capacity for health from the equation, and you've externalized your concept of health, and you're not listening into that core self at that point. And so a lot of what we do in our eight-week program online is called Journey of Intrinsic Health. And the title of the course is called that because we've come to understand that health can only emerge from within the organism. It cannot be exogenously delivered by drugs. It cannot be exogenously delivered by a prescribed nutrient you know, regimen, be it plant-based or keto or paleo or whatever words you want to make up around food. Those cannot become your, your source of health. Health literally has to be coming from within. And what we do is really teach nutrition in the context of, are you listening to self? And as you listen to self, how do you find that, that North Star? How do you find that vibration within you that is your core knowing, your deep knowingness of who you are and what you need at that moment? And I would argue there's physiologies that really need high-density proteins. I believe you can get high-density protein from plants, but not too many people know how to do that. And so we think of plants as mostly carbohydrates, but in fact, like something like the Brussels sprout has more uh, protein per calorie than steak does. And so the diversity of the amino acids, which are the building blocks for proteins, are far greater in the plant kingdom than they are in the animal kingdom. If you eat salmon, you're getting one amino acid, it's L-carnitine. If you eat beef, it's L-carnitine. So you eat beef or you eat salmon, and somebody's making some sort of judgment call on, you know, I'm healthier because I eat salmon, not beef, you're eating the exact same amino acids in the end. So this is where a lot of the misperceptions of nutrition come. And so I like basically two concepts around nutrition in the end. So really what we teach in our course is when you start going down into foods, you need to start looking at them as A, how close am I to sunshine and how much am I going to release in my cells? And B, how much biodiversity am I going to encourage in my body through the food that I'm eating? 
And the biodiversity is going to come from the diversity of amino acids on the protein side, the diversity of carbohydrates in regards to the many shapes and sizes of, of long chain, medium chain, and all of this that'll come. And then the, the fats, the, the long chain, medium chain, short chain fats that'll come in your diet. The more variety you get, in a lot of ways, the more health you can assume from those things. But again, it's not you getting the health from the plant. It's you being part of a global ecosystem that allows that sunshine to become part of you. And that ecosystem involves an enormous amount of bacteria that are going to be in your gut and ultimately in the mitochondria in your cells. And for you to make a sudden change in your diet is going to inherently challenge the capacity of your gut to do its work. And so you can't go on a plant-based diet for six weeks and say, it didn't work for me. Because during that six weeks, your microbiome is trying to learn your new diet and trying to figure out how best to match the species of bacteria, fungi, protozoa in your gut to maximize the nutrient delivery to your body. That does not happen overnight, especially if your environment is not actually plugged to your food. So if your experience with food is you go to a grocery store and you buy produce that's been washed 13 times before it's gotten to you, you've never touched soil, you've never gardened or you're buying meat, you've actually never seen a cow, you've never touched a cow, you've never butchered a cow, you're not anywhere near the microbiome from which these food sources are coming, it takes you longer to develop that microbiome shift because you're so divorced from the ecosystems that would provide the diversity that would be relevant to that food source. And so when we look at indigenous cultures and their microbiome, we see you know 5x, 10x, sometimes 20x the biodiversity in their microbiology they've got. And likewise, we can then map that biodiversity back to their environment and realize, wow, you know, when we study the hunter-gatherer tribes in Africa, for example, a huge predominant species when their gut is absolutely absent from all of Western civilization. And the only place that it's been found to be dominant in their environment is actually on the hide of the zebras that they kill and quarter and then carry on their backs for a day or two back to the tribe. And so their microbiome of their gut is being informed by the hide of a zebra that, that is contributing to their nutrient density of their food. And so in, as we started to look at this, we realized, wow, we really did ourselves a disservice by outsourcing the entire food production system to robotic and you know, long supply chains that go thousands of miles around the world and to workers that are you know, often treated in slave labor type environments and abusive and you know, humanitarian situations. And then we have all of this built-in trauma to the food itself. The, the cow in the feedlot has trauma. The butchers in, in the you know high-speed meat processing plant are traumatized and you know largely abused, and then it trickles on down. You know the truck drivers, the grocers. You know we have so many levels of misvaluation within our food system now, and that we don't realize when we pop into Whole Foods or an Erewhon or some fancy grocery store that we're really you know participating in these long supply chains that are you know relying on you know, really inept value systems that don't contribute back to those that are producing or actually getting the food to us. And so we have a long journey, I think, back to real food. And it's not going to just look like putting more broccoli on your plate. It's going to mean getting to know your farmer. It's going to be shortening the supply chain between you and that farmer, providing more of that dollar of the food back to the farmer. Uh, in the 1950s, for example, in the United States, it was about 60 cents on the dollar was going to the farmer. Now, today, we're down around 13 cents on the dollar is going to the farmer. And so we're seeing all of the bankruptcy in farms globally now and suicide rates in farmers who've never been higher than they have in the last few years. And it's because we see multi-generational farms around the world going out of business for the collapse of the return of value to the farmer. And so most of those 
those pennies on the dollar are flowing to people that are not related to the actual production of the food. And for this, we have a deep crisis of light energy getting to us. The light energy is far removed, and we've traumatized the carrier of that over and over again before it gets to us. And so what is it going to look like for us to move to a higher light system? It's going to look like community. And we're going to have to start building communities that are resilient and are food independent and have food safety and food security because they're all participating either directly with or uh, directly with the growing or directly with those that would grow the food. And so we need the CSAs and the farmers markets to become the norm again. And if you think this is impossible, I invite you to go to many pockets of Europe and realize this is how most of civilization is living there. If you need a Western example, if you want to go to you know Africa or South America, go into any of the indigenous islands around Australia, you're going to find out that everybody's eating this way. Bali is a good example. Their food markets are ridiculous. You go to Fiji, massive food markets, overflowing tables of fresh produce and vegetables. It's just spectacularly beautiful and smells and the food and the, the, the laughter and the language. And it's just like you're, you're nourished before you've even picked food out when you, you're in these systems of original foods. And when we hear this argument that we need chemical food to you know feed the world, we have to remember that today with 7.9 billion souls on the planet, 70% of our population is fed by a peasant farmer farming less than two acres. And so 70% of the 7.9 billion are being fed the same way they always have, really. And so we don't have to have some belief that we need chemical technologies to get us to some sort of fed state as a humanity. Zach, my mind, I have so many things I want to ask you, but oh my goodness, I got really emotional when you were talking and almost started crying when you were talking about the communities and how much the farmers get and the suicide rates of the farmers. Like that fully breaks my heart. So you are so passionate about getting people back into the soil, getting people back to growing their own produce. For someone listening, that might sound a little bit overwhelming. Okay, we've got to create a community. We've got to grow our own food. What's the first step for them? Beautiful. Yeah, the encouraging thing is already happening around you. And so you may have been unawares up until this moment that this was you know, the direction you, you might want to go. But the good news is others are moving this direction quickly. And the pandemic has really accelerated this over the last couple of years that we have realized in very poignant examples the vulnerability that we have in Western civilization to our food supply chains. Every city in the industrialized world, Australia, US are good examples, but you can go just about anywhere. And you'll find out that each city is basically an island in and of itself in regards to its food supply. And so I lived a spell on Hawaii for a bit, and that one's pretty obvious. If you live in Hawaii, you've got a seven-day food supply. If the ships stop coming in, everybody's going to go hungry in seven days. That's pretty easy to visualize. What's more startling is a a county like Los Angeles, one of the largest in in the United States, with tens of millions of people. And a huge bustling city and you think, well, certainly it's connected to some of the best farmland in the world and blah, blah, blah. But there's only two roads that really lead into that city based on its transportation lanes. And when you're in Los Angeles, you're now in a community of tens of millions of people that have a three-day food supply. And so the vulnerability to that situation, be it an earthquake or some other natural disaster or 
in some future plague, who knows what we can come up with. But the vulnerability is so blatantly obvious. And when you take food away from millions of people living in tight quarters, you end up with a very rapid you know, emergence of a humanitarian crisis. And we're not prepared to fix that. We're not prepared to respond to that level of crisis. And we've seen that in the pandemic. In the United States, we were startled when we found out that we can't actually get enough hospital masks on our hospital workers if a pandemic occurs because we actually get those from China. And if China goes in that pandemic first, they're going to use all the masks and they're going to stop shipping them to us. And we can't create masks. We don't have companies ready to rev up and make a bunch of masks. Unfortunately, through this pandemic, we didn't actually learn our lesson. We didn't start producing a bunch of masks here. Instead, we kind of stumbled along until China could pick back up. And we just are very slow to learn from the mistakes we make because the solutions are inconvenient or they seem like you know too hard to do or whatever it is. And so I think as a Western civilization, we have to come to terms with the fact that we have become inherently lazy. We, we are not connected to productivity anymore. And when we look at a, a lifestyle of severe convenience, we can bet that it's been built on long supply chains of all kinds of variety, not just food, but other conveniences, our technology, our you know, simple day-to-day infrastructure, the hardware in our house. You know, in the United States, everybody freaked out about toilet paper, not enough toilet paper. All these simple things break down. And it's because we simply forgot that you, know, it, you have to be a producer of your own reality and we just became complacent, not thinking about where these things were occurring on the planet. And I believe that even you know, short of a, a pandemic, we're starting to see a, a leveling out of the playing field between the developing nations and the developed nations as far as their economies and all this. And I think we're going to see a shift over these next few years to countries that have historically been you know, exploited for slave labor, for production of our, our clothing, our food, all kinds of things they're going to start to realize that they don't need to be screwed over by external exports and they can start to be a resilient, self-modifying you know, economy in and of themselves. And so we'll see a, a bit of a diversification of the workplace, I think, across the world. And that's already being seen. The auto industry is a good example of that for a while. Japan was making all the cars and all that. And now we see Japan actually making cars in the United States and factories based in the U.S. here, for example. So we're seeing that migration over the last 10 years to extreme you know, importation to more diversification because the cost of work is starting to level out across those playing fields and the economies are becoming more and more integrated. And so there's not so much opportunity for exploitation abroad, which I think is a good thing. And so we'll see a leveling of that playing field. We need to become active participants in that in Western civilization. We need to start to realize that we need to become producers of our reality and not reliant on abstract providers for the convenience that we enjoy. And so that, again, looks like community. Do you know somebody in your community that makes anything? And that's a place to start. And so if you're too afraid to start your garden, meet somebody that has a backyard garden. They're right around the street. They've got, you've got them nearby. If you don't have somebody on the street, you live in an inner city or you live out in the rural space, meet a farmer at the local farmer's market, at a CSA, wherever it is. And, and it is exciting that we see urban environments starting to really be populated by these farmer's market opportunities more and more across the world. So get engaged on that community level. But for yourself, I would really encourage everybody listening to grow something. If that's just a mint plant, grow a mint plant. Mint is pretty much indestructible. You stick that thing in a pot and it's going to produce. If you stick it in the ground, it's going to take over your entire yard, which is also kind of fun. And so growing your own mint is a fun way to realize that you can be connected to your food because 
if you can't even don't even know how to cook with fresh mint, you can certainly boil water with the mint in it and make yourself some fresh mint tea. And you're going to realize you've never actually tasted fresh mint. And that's going to remind you how separated you are from this concept of light energy within your food. So grow a mint plant, grow a single tomato plant, grow a basil plant, whatever it is that inspires you and become connected to that one food again and taste what real basil tastes like. I'm sure in Australia you say basil or something much more beautiful than basil, but (laughs) there's this opportunity for us to get re-engaged with those, not just nutrients and the sunlight, but also the, the spiritual experience of being touching something real. And it will give back to you far more than you'll put into it. And it will be, I think, a touch point for you to start to remember how disconnected you might be in the work that you do, in the duties that you've taken on in your life, the sense of responsibility you may have adopted from your ego's effort to create a sense of value in your own life. If we start to let go of duty, responsibility, and start to really dive into where is human life actually occurring? What does it feel like to be alive? It's probably not in the cubicle. It's probably not answering more emails. It's probably not being stuck on the Instagram feed. Being alive is a lot like sharing a meal. And when you share a fresh made meal with people you love, you will have the highest reward state. You will have this deep sense of innate gratitude that I believe is really the foundation of where health comes from. If you can plug back into the state of being that we would call gratitude, this deep sense of thankfulness for all that we would receive in a day, we shift out of the mentality of, I need to earn this, I need to make this, I need to go you know, earn my value or my you know, 10 cents and start to receive. That's a different energy altogether. And nature loves those that will receive. And you, know, you spend just a couple hours out in a trail or walking in the mountains and look around at everything that is receiving the glory of the universe, be it the trees, be it the wildflowers, be it your, you know, spouse that's walking ahead of you, your children running through the field, you're going to see an innate capacity for receipt, the receiving of the beauty and glory of the cosmos around us. And when you start to live life looking for those moments, looking for that wealth in your life, I think we will quickly solve for all of the crises that we've built as we've moved away from that. A hundred percent. One hundred percent. And as as you were talking, I was thinking about Every Sunday we go to the farmer's markets and the joy on a physical, a spiritual, emotional level that I get every Sunday when we go there, I get so excited. I look forward to that so much. I love talking to each farmer. I love it so much. And right now where we live, we don't have a backyard, so we can't grow all of our own produce. One day that is my dream. But just going to the farmer's market, it brings me so much joy. Being out in nature brings me so much joy. And I know everyone listening, even if you have been a bit disconnected from nature, you still know the feeling you get and you have still experienced that when you put your feet on the sand or your feet on the grass. We have all experienced that at least once in our life. And for me, being outside and being in nature, especially with my new daughter, it just brings me so much joy. It makes me so happy. I feel my cells charge up and I feel revitalized. And there's so much noise. There's so much 
shooting, you know, like you said, the cubicle and the Instagram and all of that, that's kind of taken over our life. And it's about coming back to basics, being alive in nature, doing the things that light us up. That is where true healing happens on a physical, emotional, and a spiritual level. And that's where we need to start. Yeah. I think that what you're feeling, you know, at the farmer's market or looking into your daughter's face is a good example of how we are all capable of finding the solution for everything. Because you can actually feel that stuff. You can feel the beauty of your child. You can feel the beauty of fresh produce. Your body has an intrinsic capacity to literally vibrate to the resonance of beauty. And it's been a big shift in my life as I've come to to believe that the universe is not made of the frequency of love, but is instead made of the frequency of beauty. And when you witness beauty, you experience love. And this solved for a, a lifelong crisis that I had is like, how do we as humans think we're going to emerge from the darkness that we are currently creating if we believe that love is the solution for everything? Because we seem to be so far from our understanding or capacity to actually execute love. And when you find out that love is not something we can produce, love is not something that you, you can go do to somebody. Love is literally the vibrational experience of seeing the beauty in something else. I feel much better about our situation because every human knows exactly what beauty looks like and the feeling they get when they witness it. And that means we are that close to this enlightened new experience where we start to all appreciate the singularity that we're in because we all watch the same damn sunset every day. We all watch the same moonrise every night. We have singularity in our experience through our common witness of the beauty of nature that we are within. And when we come to see that, we will behave differently. And I have a lot of passion right now about this concept of natural law, because when we look across the world, what we saw in the last two years was not a pandemic of a virus in my book. We saw a pandemic of polarization, fear, guilt, shame, and the like. And we may have used a virus as the excuse, but you will have seen the exact same tactics of fear, polarization, guilt, shame practiced in the months before the pandemic or the years before the pandemic. So this is just the most recent version that we have chosen to polarize the universe around is this fear of a virus. Now it's a fear of World War III with Ukraine and Russia going on and everything else. And so the world will continue to offer us opportunities. Humans will continue to offer one another an opportunity to increase the polarization, increase the fear, increase the guilt, because it's the path we've been following. And those that could induce the highest amount of fear, trauma on, on those around them were the ones that had the most power. And that has not changed yet. However, it was not always like this. And, you know, it's really not until we saw the rise and fall of empires that we started to see this phenomenon of trauma equals power. If we go to any of our indigenous roots, and we all have indigenous roots. And so as we look through our ancestral gen genome, and we look back through the patterns of life before us, we will quickly find ourselves in a few hundred years, a few thousand years back in our 200,000 year history as humans, homo sapiens, there's been the vast majority of that has been predominated by a concept called natural law. And natural law has a huge body of work that informed governance and social political change for eons before we developed the phenomenon of industrialized empires. And I would say you can look back to maybe Greece, Rome, these industrialized empires that started to set into motion the rise and fall, rise and collapse of these huge power systems. And it's notable that they always collapse, no matter how big these empires get, 
they always collapse because they have an unsustainable model of power. They have an unsustainable model of wealth, and it is all about extraction. Extraction is is always self-limited. Tumor is a good example of biology that's failed to be able to make its own fuel, so it goes into an extractive state of stealing fuel from all around it, and it ultimately kills the very organism that it is. So it will kill itself in the effort to get more extraction. And that's what an empire does. A tumor is a biologic example of the sociopolitical phenomenon of human empire. Human empire is falling again. And this time it's the United States and the US dollar that are threatening global economies and everything else. And so we see a whole lot of bizarre behaviors around this thing that we call a pandemic. We rushed out as a country, we printed $4 trillion. It's the largest example of what we call quantitative easing, which is a really fancy term for saying we print money from nothing and sorry about that, the rest of the world, you just have to deal with it. And so we create these artificial pressures on global economies by printing money that are not backed by anything real or valuable other than a military. So the US military being the largest in the world allows us to print money and say it's worth something because we dictate oil chains and everything else. And now you see, you know, as we print $4 trillion, you see a war breakout around, of course, oil fields and the relationship of our nuclear armament in Ukraine and the ways in which that's related to the Middle East. And so you see all of these trickle-down effects back to military and oil, which is the largest you know, industry outside of healthcare now. And so you've got this military-type effort to secure the U.S. dollar as we've gone into this massive quantitative easing around the pandemic. So in this way, you're seeing the stress points of an empire at its near end. And it's inevitable. It's not something we can actually prevent. It's something at best we can postpone or slow down. But we are in the collapse phase of an empire that we've seen happen over and over again. And they are often caused by the same stressors. Overall, it's an an over-extraction process where our supply chains in Rome got too long and couldn't maintain the roads and started to get a failure of taxation and the whole system kind of fell apart. Same thing's happening now. Supply chains are too long. The U.S. doesn't actually produce enough of its real stuff, so we become vulnerable, so we have to get more and more colonial and invasive around the world. China's doing the same thing around the world, buying up everybody's nutrient rights and mineral rights and everything else they can find, water rights. And so they're buying up more and more of the universe, trying to secure their their empire. So you have all these massive companies that are in a vulnerable state. And my excitement is this is great. This is biology playing out. This is exactly how it's going to have to happen. And so what we get to ask right now is a preemptive question of not how do we prevent an empire collapse, but what do we do after the empire collapse? Could we begin to prepare for a civilization that can support 7.9 billion people without exploitation? Could that be done? And the answers are pretty exciting when you start to look to natural law. Like I mentioned, 70% of the world is being fed by a peasant farmer. I believe the same is true for social political change and reformation. We can create a society that is micro in its delivery. We can start to create decentralized systems of economics, decentralized systems of food, decentralized systems of education, decentralized systems of sociopolitics. And so by going back local, not just for your farmer, but for your politicians and your teachers and for the content that they're teaching, we find an incredible template for success that has never been practiced or experimented with at a global level. And I really believe we're reaching that point of exhaustion about nationalism. You see this Ukraine war, we've got large percentages of Russia standing up against their own government protesting this war. You've got people all over Europe protesting. So I think countries are finally starting to wear out from this whole 
you know, chest pounding nationalism, realizing we have we have climate crisis at such a grand scale now. How can we possibly be putting this much effort into dealing with some dispute over a country that most people don't even know where it is? Most people don't know where Ukraine is or where it produces or the brilliance of their people. Uh, my company has the good fortune of working with incredible programmers out of the Ukraine, and they are simply the best, most brilliant mathematicians I've ever worked with. Best programmers. They are a just gene pool of, of excellence in the, in the intellectual capacity to understand mathematics and its application and information technologies and all these things. People don't know that. People don't know that we have these, you know, brilliant sources of, of human intellectual nutrients, you know, all over the world that are in places that are dying currently. Syria put an embargo on Iran. The Persians were literally the beginning of geometry and mathematics and and we've walled them off and refused to let them play in the co-creative environment of a global economy. It's insanity when you look back at the human level. What are we doing? Why are we isolating each other? When do we start to move towards natural systems of law and governance? And so to that end, you know, I've had the great pleasure of working with some colleagues to launch the Institute of Natural Law and Governance, uh, which is by website, Institute of Natural Law and gov, G-O-V dot org. And Institute of Natural Law and Governance is looking to update our understanding of natural law, where we go beyond understanding just human systems of governance and start to look at natural law to include the rights of nature and the importance of nature in our actual survival. As we start to see the potential of our own extinction in the next 80, 100 years, we have to come to terms with the fact that we rely not on cooperative relationships with China. We rely on cooperative relationships with the microbiome under our feet and the bacteria and fungi and the soil systems far more than we would some other national you know, force. And once we recognize that the soil and the air and the water are the only three things that we need to re-engineer our future, we all share the same soil, water, and air globally. It is a single system. The earth has never lost one drop of water. I find that fascinating. We think of all the water crisis around the planet. We think of the massive flooding that's happened in Australia in recent months, devastating effects of climate shift and you know, storm patterns and you know, severe weather, droughts in some parts and massive flooding in other parts. As we see the instability of soil, water, air systems, we have to come to terms with the fact that is not a local event. That is a symptom of a complete collapse at the global level of some sort of system of balance within carbon cycles, water cycles, and the like. And so when we start to look to that and we expand our concepts of natural law to include the rights of nature, we can rewrite legislation, we can rewrite write corporate bylaws and uh, corporate you know, structure so that Mother Nature is at the top line, not some bottom line contribution of 1% for the world, which always cracks me up when <laughs> some companies says, well, don't worry, we're 1% for the planet. Well, actually, that means you're 99% against the planet, but let's just ignore that for a second. You know, like, so you're out there at Colgate or, you know, Nestle or whoever you are, and you're, you're destroying the planet so fast, but you start to donate back and then you get to claim some sort of, you know, altruistic byline of 1% for the planet. We have to become 100% for the planet because the planet is us. It is our future. If we don't come to recognize Mother Nature as the literal source of life for humanity, we will march into our own extinction. And we're that close to shifting that because we're that close to recognizing that beauty is the source of love. And when we start to see the beauty of the nature around us again, when we unplug from our devices, unplug from the, the streaming video and walk outside and breathe fresh air for a moment, touch Mother Nature. You know, run through a forest with a dog or a child, 
and see what you get out of that experience. You'll realize, man, we're just that easy. We're that close. We literally just have to stop doing the, the distraction and start living our lives. And when we really learn that life is simple, and this is really the journey of intrinsic health in a nutshell too, is whether it be your food, your exercise, your breathing, your sleep, all these d- different elements of biology, it's always going to come back to recognizing the power of natural rhythms. And when you align yourself with natural rhythms, life simply emerges. You don't have to go and do health. Health happens when you align yourself with the natural rhythms. So we don't need to go create some future human existence that will actually be stable or some sociopolitical system. We have to allow that to happen. We have to allow the sociopolitical reformation to happen as we come to vibrate and recognize the beauty around us within nature. And we start to live and we start to value the capacity and that sensation of being alive moment to moment. And when we live life like that, we will actually allow our future to emerge. Yeah, it's really about coming back to, you know, we become so divorced from the basics and the simple of sleep. You know, there's all these sleep devices and eating ways and exercising things. And it's just so far from the simplicity of just coming back to your center, to your truth, to tapping into that feeling and really stripping it back and not getting so complex with it. And just, it is quite simple. And I know for me personally, when I've spent a day inside, say it's been raining and I know rain is no obstacle, but if you know, say I don't want to go outside in the rain, I feel different in my cells. My body feels different. If I haven't had fresh air, if I've been on a flight, if I have been inside, I can feel it at a cellular level. And as soon as I go outside and I take a deep breath, or one of the first things I do when I get off a flight is I go and earth, I immediately feel reconnected back to my truth immediately. And like I said before, we all know that feeling. We all know it feels so good when we dive in that ocean. We all know how that feels. And I want to encourage everyone listening to just reconnect back with that. Get up out of your chair behind your desk and go outside. It really is that simple. Go outside, touch the trees and be outside as much as possible. And I know for me, since having my daughter, I am outside way more, so much more. We are outside five times a day and we literally just come back to either feed her or to for her naps. And then we're back outside again straight away. And, you know, that's one of the beauties of living where I live. It's a very tropical climate. It's it's very beautiful weather. But even I notice for her that she gets a little bit of cabin fever if she has not been outside and she's different. And so I just want to encourage everyone to get outside as much as possible. Get your hands in the dirt, on the sand, the grass, touch the trees. It really is one of the best places to start. So I just wanted to share that with you. And I also wanted to remind everybody that we vote with our dollar. You spoke about that 1%. (laughs) And so often we jump on our computers and we click purchase and we are saying that we believe when we click purchase, we are saying that we believe in that company that we believe in their core values and their ethos, 
And we're almost, you know, giving them a little pat on the back or a standing ovation every time that we purchase something from someone. And I live a minimal life and that's something that feels really good for me. And every purchase that I make, I stop and I take a breath and I really tune into whether I actually really need this thing first and foremost. And then is this the best place that I can get this thing from? Or is there a local around the corner that I could get it from? Or could I borrow it from a friend? And I just want to remind everyone that we vote with our dollar. And every time you are purchasing from the big supermarkets, the big corporations, you are saying that you believe in that. So be really discerning with who you give your money to. Be really discerning. Like I have no issue spending money on things that I truly believe in. But when it's not something that I believe in, I just won't do it. I just can't do it. It's, you know, I remember a while ago, I have a 16-year-old stepson and we were going to do an experiment for his school about having McDonald's and seeing how long we can leave that McDonald's burger out for before it gets mold and before the flies and cockroaches want to eat it. And I literally couldn't go and buy it. I could not buy it. I was like, no, I can't. I can't. I just can't. I cannot do it because I can't give my money to a corporation like that. So I just want to remind everyone that you vote with your dollar. And if you can stay local as much as possible, if you can grow some of your own produce, if you don't do that, go to the farmer's market. I'm pretty sure there will be one within a couple of kilometer radius to where you live. There are so many popping up everywhere now. And I just want to remind everyone of that because our vote really matters. And I know a lot of people might think, oh, but it's just me. You know, what's my apples? You know, my purchase of apples going to do? It makes a difference. It truly makes a difference. You make a difference. And if we want to turn this ship around, you know, a statistic that really had me concerned about the future was that that talk of only being 60 harvests left due to the soil degeneration. Like, I've just had a baby. I'm like, what, what do you mean 60 harvests left? If we want to turn this around, it comes back to us, our choices that we make on a daily basis, the decisions that we make, and like what you said, being the producers of our reality. I love that. So I just wanted to say that. It's beautiful. I think that there's a real spirit of hope in what you're saying there, and that the dollar is such a, a common expression of what we do in community. But it also is interesting to realize that we have come to understand ourselves as consumers. And that word is so interesting. We have heard the consumers, or we are the consumers. And that is quite literal. We are consuming the planet right now. We are sucking the life out of the energy of the planet right now. We are the cancer on the planet in that we've become extractive. Well, we are one empire, not an American empire, whatever. We are one empire called humanity, and we have adopted a universally extractive way of living. And unfortunately, I'm seeing this all the way down to the very most foundational original peoples on the planet right now. I just spent time with the Oshawar tribe down in, in the rainforest uh, last summer. And as soon as Western civilization touches a community like that, 
the immediate infection is that of the dollar, that of the consumer behavior. And suddenly these people that have been autonomously living independently without you know, hardship have been provided for by their nature for 40,000 years in their neighborhoods of the Amazon rainforest are suddenly feeling lack when they don't have enough motors for their canoes or they don't have you know, enough fuel for their motors or they need more solar power so they have electricity so they have a TV. We introduce them to the world of shifting from receiving from the universe to consuming the universe. And that is a very dangerous shift that we tend to export very violently in the form of civilization. What we would call colonialism is really our, our current form of civilization. And so this abusive power is certainly rampant when we're taking away people's land, we're taking away you know, people's rights, and you know, we have corporations running around doing land grabs and all this awful stuff in the world right now. But the much darker thing that we do is we take away their soul by turning them into consumers, and they no longer receive, but they consume. And as soon as they turn into consumer, they've, they've caught the disease of, of civilization, and they start to express disease in themselves. And so we see immune dysfunction. We see all kinds of violent dysfunction within their environments, both at the individual biologic level. We see cancer take off. We see autoimmune disease for the first time. We also see conflict within their sociopolitical structures that had been stable because it had been built on natural law and had run for 40,000 years. They suddenly, as soon as moving to this extractive behavior of consumers, and they forget that there is abundance and they start to believe in scarcity, it creates immediate conflict that didn't exist before that moment. And so we have a deep lesson to learn from your message of the dollar is that we need to stop seeing ourselves as consumers. Deeper than that, we have to stop behaving like consumers and we start to be co-creators. We have to become co-creators as a species. And we have not stepped into that role yet, but we have the opportunity to do that. And if we do, we will end the sixth great extinction immediately. And we will start the process of building the most vibrant, vital planet that's existed in this 4 billion year history, because it has been building over that time. It's gone through five great extinctions. And after every extinction, it gets more beautiful. This last great extinction was you know, 55 billion years ago as a huge asteroid hit the planet, killed all of the topsoil. We lost 93% of life on Earth. We are the existential crisis on the planet now. We are killing the topsoil and we will lose 93% of life on the planet again as we lose the topsoil and acidify the oceans. And so that process is well underway. But it, since we are the crisis, we can also change that trajectory. And so where we can pull that asteroid back out of the planet's history, we can pull human consumerism out of the planet in time to stabilize biology such that we stop this 10,000 fold increase in the extinction rate that we've seen in the last 30 years, we can stop that and we can start to support life at all levels from the soil to you know, First Nations and Indigenous peoples that are still existing to our you know, advanced societies of socioeconomics that are really contaminated with this consumerism and everything else. We can take all of those and shift them overnight. If we move to this concept of natural law, governance is about becoming co-creators rather than consumers. And we can start to move to the possibility that we will make this earth richer, not poorer for our presence. Mm, I'm so excited. I'm so excited for that. And I just love how hopeful you are and that we can all make a difference. And it starts with us. And it's possible. It's absolutely possible. It's sitting right in front of us. Tell me a little bit more about your program, Journey of Intrinsic Health. Tell me more about this program. It sounds fascinating. 
Well, I'm a little bit biased on that, but I get fascinated by it every time because I, I often am surprised by what comes through when we deliver content like this. I think there's bigger truths that happen. And I love the way you said early in this podcast, you said uh, something along that lines. You said, when you go outside and you breathe real air, you find your truth. You can feel your truth. That's a really powerful, true statement right there. And that's what I think Journey of Intrinsic Health is really about, is how do we start to give you the eight building blocks for biology such that we take you into this like metaphysical, spiritual transformation of understanding who you are. And it's fun that we can use the levers of biology to help you towards this process. So Journey of Intrinsic Health is really about helping you build a lifestyle that is going to begin this process of rebuilding vitality within your bodies, light energy, the respiratory cycle, increasing the speed of detoxification in your body, all these different things. And we look heavily to the ways in which you interact with your environment to inform these things. So this is not about human health. This is really about an environmental health event and your environmental health in regards to your nutrition, your exercise, your breathing, your fasting, all these patterns that you can start to align with. You're going to find out that it's nearly free to be vital because these things come from within. It's not about going to the right grocery store. It's not about going and eating the most expensive produce you can find. It's actually about finding out that you know within you what your truth is. And our ultimate goal for Journey of Intrinsic Health is to get you to a point where you realize you showed up right now at the tipping point of all things, and therefore you are in great purpose. And you picked this moment in time to show up right now to express your truth. And without your truth, we miss the opportunity to transform from consumers to co-creators. As we reduce the stress in your organism, the organism we would call your body, your mind, your spirit, as we reduce the stress, we turn on areas of your brain that are intrinsically creative. And so at the end of the eight-week program, we see an explosion of creativity within our community. And so Journey of Intrinsic Health has its biologic sides and such biologic underpinnings. And we team you up with a coach. Uh, some people will go through the coaching experience where you go through with six and eight individuals with you and you get to see each other transformed by this lifestyle and by the changes you're going to make. Or some people thrive on the one-on-one -on -one experience where you've got a coach and Coaches are there to help you really start to apply this and understand where you have deeply held true, you know, fears and relationships to your food. Where are the pathologies of your codependence with the distractions that you've put into your space to keep you from knowing yourself? And so the coach is there to help be that mirror to you and bring you closer to that truth that you feel within yourself so that we can turn on a creative human being that showed up at the tipping point of all things to participate in this massive transformation of light energy within ourselves, creativity rather than consumerism, and become this vital part of transformation. And we're very excited this year when we relaunched the program, we were able to relaunch it with an app, a community app that everybody who's gone through the program gets to see each other and start to communicate on their own terms. And we see groups self-organizing for creativity, self-organizing for new companies, new products, new ideas, new you know, nonprofits, the whole thing, because the community is feeling this potential within themselves, each individual, and they want to express that in community as soon as they find it within themselves. And that is a beautiful thing about human nature. We are inherently a creative and community-centered organism, and we feel the vitality that comes from connection. When you go out and you breathe real air, you feel alive and you find your truth, but you will die lonely if you don't go share that truth with somebody else. And so the real beauty of longevity that we find in the blue zones around the world, the blue zones are all these spaces around the planet that people tend to live over 100 years of age. What we find as the unifying feature is multi-generational living where people eat and 
work and live with elders, with children at every stage of life. And we no longer monotonize it. So the kids are hanging out with the kids and the elders are packed away in nursing homes and like we create multi-generational experiences. And I learned this from in spades from this couple that came over from Ikaria, Greece, which is one of these incredible blue zone islands in the Grecian uh, islands, horribly dysfunctional economy. You would think like, how can people live you know, in poverty over a hundred years of age? It's because they're living the same lifestyles they have for over 600 years. Uh, this, this couple came over, they live on a farm that has been in the family for 600 years. I don't know where my family was 600 years. I have no idea. <laughs> I don't have that kind of sense of rootedness to my own history. So they have this deep sense of home. They have this deep sense of their role and their stewardship of land that will become their children's 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 land. And so they have this longitudinal view of their role within nature as a steward rather than a consumer. They're there to co-create with their farm rather than consume all of the soil for their own good. And so uh, they served this incredible meal that they had prepared for five days. They had foraged around Northern Virginia to prepare this meal for us. And at the end of this meal, you know, we were all moved over and over again to tears by the beauty of this simplicity of this meal and the amount of love that this couple had baked into this food for us. And so I stood up at the end and I gave this great toast and my uh, about the beauty of the microbiome and how we're all connected. And I just was in my zone and I was just feeling right on and, and the guy gets up at the end of my toast and, and he says in this thick Greek accent, that was very interesting doctor, but you're completely wrong. And he said, the, the reason we live long in Ikaria has nothing to do with our microbiome or our food that we eat. The reason we live long in Ikaria, Greece is because every night that we serve dinner, we always set an extra seat at the table, hoping that somebody new will come and share a meal with us. He said, that's why we live long is because we never ask each other, what did you eat last night? But we always ask, who did you eat with last night? And that is the secret to human longevity is we have to find curiosity in other humans and we have to find reverence for the opportunity to sit together and share a meal. And that's where we're going to find our truth. And when we sit around meals again and we share meals with somebody we haven't met before and we share those with our elders and we sit before elders and we listen to them, we will change the way we behave instantly. And we are the producers and the creators of the future. And we are the consumers of the past. And so we need to stop the past. We need to stop the consumption. And we need to begin the production. And we're going to find that by finding the beauty in one another and staring into one of each other's faces and listening to each other's stories at length to really feel what it feels like to be another human. And when we find that beauty in one another, the world will become a different place quickly. So beautiful. And again, those moments where we're sitting around the table and we're sharing beautiful food and we're connecting and we're hearing stories and we sit there and four hours goes by. Is there anything that lights you up that much? You know, the joy not once, you know, when I have those moments, do I go, oh, what's the time or feel bored? You know, it's those moments are what give me fuel. They are life force. I love it. I say to my husband, I would have people over every single night for dinner, every single night if we could. And then when I was thinking about that, I was like, but why couldn't we? Like, why don't I do that? Why don't we share more meals? And it's because I've told myself the story that, oh, we've got, you know, this on, or we've got too much to do, or we've got, you know, this the next day. But literally sitting around a table with beautiful people, sharing stories, sharing a beautiful meal is life force. It is when I feel 
just completely lit up. So why am I not doing it more regularly? So you have inspired me. I'm going to have definitely more dinner parties. And when you're in Australia next, you are definitely coming over for one of those meals. And I love so much how it really comes back to creativity and community. And I hear many people say to me, oh, I'm not creative. I'm not the creative type. And what you're saying is, ultimately, we are all creative. And when we strip back all of the stuff that we have put on top, the stories, the fear, maybe the story that someone said to us one time that we weren't creative, when we strip all of that back, and it sounds like you do this in the journey of intrinsic health, but when you strip all of that back, ultimately, there is this creative being waiting to be expressed, just sitting there. And that potential is so exciting. And you said it's free to be vital. And I also wanted to add to that, it's your birthright. It's your birthright to be vital and to unlock your creativity and to express that with the world. So I just love that so much. And I love the sound of the program. I'm definitely going to jump on board because I know there's so much creativity still brewing within me that I want to express. And so it sounds amazing. So thank you for creating that. It was right there in all of us. And so that's what I love about creativity is actually not a doing as much as it is just a being. And so we need to learn to be more. And and in the process of being us, we will find that we are deeply creative beings and we can channel intelligence that goes far beyond our own apparent experience. And I think that's what's happened in Journey of Intrinsic Health is I've gotten to be more than Zach for a moment. I've gotten to be a higher intelligence that is tapping into sources of information that come from outside of my own short lifetime experience here because I am a resonance chamber. I am an antenna system as a body, and I can pick up information from the cosmos. I can pick up information from the air I breathe. I can pick up information from the genomics, the microRNA I breathe in. I can pick up the vibration of of sunrise, sunset. I can pick up the vibration of another human who is in suffering. I can pick up the vibration of a human that has just found transformative hope in their life. And in that, I can actually pick up this information and carry it forward in a way. And so when you participate in Journey of Entrance Health or hear this podcast even, I want you to know that you're listening to yourself. Between my words, between Melissa's words, you are hearing yourself. You are hearing your own truth. You are hearing yourself. And so your experience from this is going to be, oh my gosh, that was an awesome podcast. But what you're really experiencing is you are an awesome human being. And you have so much inside of you that is waiting to be mirrored back at you. And so the space between our words today has served as that mirror. And if you've heard something that sparked you, know that that didn't come from outside of you. That is inside of you. That spark is inside of you. That thing that wants to grow and flare into a fire and become the thing that torches down the current state of affairs, that lies within you and it lies within me. And so when we start to come close to each other, we can light each other's fires again. When we look into each other's faces and we share that meal, if you want to take it to the next level past the meal, you will create music together. You will sing together. Around a campfire, we'll take it to the final level. And when you start to sing and dance around a fire again together, you will ignite something in you that is a deep remembrance of why you decided to show up again at this tipping point of humanity to be part of an incredibly new experiment of consciousness as we learn to release far more light from our 
food systems, from our energy systems, from our information technologies, from our education systems, as we start to light each other up again, because when we look at each other, we see each other instead of be distracted by other things and vaguely have the impression of other humans. You vaguely have the impression of 7.9 billion people. I vaguely have a sense of that. And I love traveling because I'm always stunned when I go to a new city. Five million people living here. And I never even imagined this place, let alone I never imagined these five million people. And there's the face of a mother with three children. And there's the face of a truck driver. And there's the face of a farmer. I get to see when I travel how much I've taken for granted in the beauty of humanity itself. I have forgotten that every one of those 7.9 billion faces is beautiful. And every one of those 7.9 billion people have two hands that have incredible maps of their lives engraved in their hands, engraved in the, in the wounds and the traumas in their hearts. There is so much beauty sitting in front of us when we look at each other. And we will spark some beauty when we start to recognize that in one another and we start to live in reverence to one another. And we will see that new light. And I am so glad to be looking in your face today, Melissa. You are a bright light for the world. And I'm just blessed to know you. And I'm blessed to share time, space with you. For each of you listening, you are part of the energy of this moment. Space time is a, a human construct. There is no time. We are all connected all the time, instantaneously. You are informing my heart, my mind as I speak here, but more importantly, you are between my words, your spirit, your hearts, your minds, your consciousness, your connection to the divine. All of that lies between our words and between the tears that well up in our eyes when we actually do look at each other. And we will find you in the midst of that. And we're grateful you're here. Oh my gosh. Zach, I wish I could just jump through this screen right now and just hug you. Thank you. Thank you. Truly thank you. You are just, mm, thank you. Thank all of you. Thank, <laughs> thank humanity. Thank the divine. Thanks for nature. Thank you, the trees. Thank you, trees, for breathing for us. Thank you for being patient with us as we destroy you and you continue to breathe for us. So thank you, Mother Nature, for your grace and your patience with us. We're catching up. We're going to make it. We're going to shift have grace a little longer on us. Yeah, we're listening. We're listening. We are. And thank you. Yes, thank you so much. The work that you do, everything, you are just magic. You are magic. And I'm so grateful. And I, you know, when we're talking about there's so many different things we've covered today, and there were so many moments where I like, I was thinking, can Zach put that in a book for teenagers, because I wish I had this knowledge. I wish I had this awareness that I have now back then. And a question that I ask all of my guests and I've asked you before is about if you could put one book in the school curriculum, what would that book be? And this is for the entire world. If one book could go in and, and I personally would love you to write <laughs> So, so can that be your next, your next download? But if there's, if there's one book that you could choose, what would it be? Mm. There's a children's book called uh, The Horse and His Boy. And uh, I've got it. You've got that book. I wish every adult would read that book because we remember in that book what every child should and does know. But there's, you know, a great line in that book. It's a pencil drawing kind of book and the boy's on the back of the horse and he says to the horse, where do we get our strength from? 
And the horse says, we get our strength from knowing that we are loved. It's these simple truths in that book that I think really take us a long ways towards realizing that it is not complicated to be human. To find our humanity is a simple thing. To live in our humanity is a simple thing. Uh, beyond that book, you know, uh, um, for all of you in Australia and beyond, I would just lift up the incredible work of one of your, your greatest regenerative godfathers there, Charles Massey, uh, who wrote the work that is called The Call of the Reed Warbler. And that book, even if it was just the first, you know, two or three chapters that we prescribed to elementary or, or high school kids, I think we would find a, a real shift in our awareness of where our food comes from and how, even as farmers, we've become divorced from the very nature that produces for us. And in discovering that nature provides for nature's self, uh, that Charles goes on that that journey as a farmer who's who's seeing the failing of of the chemical industry and the chemical farming process and finds himself as the recipient of an abundant nature and has now lived himself and in an enormous you know industry around him in Australia there of the regenerative agricultural movement. I really herald Charles Massey as a hero among us with that writing. So the call of the Reed Warbler, and if you can't handle a tome like that, just read the first few chapters. And if you can't handle that, then definitely look up Horse and Boy. And uh, I think you know beyond that, I would also you know just encourage you guys to uh, learn from each other. Right now, there's a huge movement in Australia and globally around this regenerative movement. Uh, we just launched uh, Farmers Footprint org.au as a new nonprofit in Australia there and uh, run by Blair Beatty, who's an extraordinary gentleman out of the Byron Bay area. And uh, that organization is picking up steam quickly as we tell the stories of farmers there in Australia and beyond that are starting to make these decisions to allow a co-creative identity to come back in instead of trying to micromanage nature, become a co-creator with that nature. And these farmers are discovering great sustainable wealth for themselves, their families, and the land that they live on as they turn their attention towards this natural law that lives within them. So that's farmersfootprint.org.au to find that Australian organization there and um, learn from the stories of other humans. Because before we had books, we had an oral history and we told each other stories around the fire. And there is nothing more riveting than hearing a human tell a good story. And so I would invite you to listen to the stories of the farmers. If you can't pick up a book that inspires you, listen to the words of the farmer and listen to the words of the poets that they often are, and uh, you'll find your way back into hope. Mm, yes, beautiful. I love that so much. It's really so beautiful. And can you please write some books for, for those high school ages <laughs> those, as well. Those are, those are in works. And the very least thing that I enjoy reading is my own writing. <laughs> but it, it will have its own presence there in the human spirit here in, in the months to come. So thank you for intentioning that in with me. Oh, yeah. I just think it would just be so beautiful. So please, yes, let me know when that comes out as well. And we'll link to the farmer's footprint and everything that you've mentioned, the journey to intrinsic health in the show notes and everything that you've mentioned and the books, everything. So we'll link to all of that in the show notes. But I would love to hear about how you move through your day, Zach. I want to hear about your rituals and your routines or I just want to hear about how your day looks for you. Yeah, 
I am a rolling stone, so you will find very little as far as repetition in my day-to-day because I am always in a different space-time. And the biggest thing that really changes in me, I think, on a daily basis is my own self-identity. I am getting closer and closer to um, something really complete in myself, and I'm nowhere near that, perhaps, on some sort of existential belief of enlightenment or something like that, but I feel more coherent on a daily basis. It's not because I do the same thing every day. In fact, it's because I change my environment all the time that I set, tend to be able to find myself better. Because it's not until you leave behind the rituals that you currently make your day inherent that you start to find out who you really are. Because right now we are an externalized self-identity. And as we intentionally begin to let go of the things that have become our ritual beliefs of identity, we start to give space for this deeper truth to emerge from ourselves. But that said, I think it is important to have grounding experiences in the day that no matter where you go, you know you are home. And my sense of home has shrank from, you know, a big log home in the countryside of Virginia that I built with my my son and my family to basically the, the few things I can carry in a small carry-on bag and what's in my heart. That's really, you know, becoming my home. And that feels really good to me to move within that space because I find more and more of myself being expressed to those that I'm around when I start to let go of all of these other external identities. I'm a boss, I'm an entrepreneur, I'm a doctor, I'm all these things. As you start to let go of those and start to let the eye contact be your self-identity. My business card is no longer printed. (laughs) My business card is my hug and I'll give anybody a hug. And I will tell you in that hug how I feel about being alive right now. I'm grateful. I feel vital. And I'm excited to be with you. And in that hug, I think there's something that we can learn about uh, the rituals. And so I would say that the things that define my daily experience is a lot of hugs with a lot of new people. I get to meet so many people on the road all the time. And I find myself very rich in spirit for that. And so hugs. And then the second thing that I would point to is tea. (laughs) I am a freaking tea fanatic because I find it fascinating. It's the interaction of plants that have been grown for tens of thousands of years in human industry because we discovered medicinal qualities to it. We discovered ritual qualities to these plants. And what we do with those dried leaves is we place them back in water. And so imagine the process of taking the message of life from a plant removing its water so that it will be sustained, it will be transportable, it it won't mold, it can be carried with us for for thousands of miles as we travel ourselves or as we share the intelligence of our earth with other cultures around us. As we share tea, we start to experience the magic between indigenous knowingness within each of ourselves and these long roots of human experience built around the concept of tea and the practice of tea making. And you take that tea and you put it in water. And water is the only molecule on Earth capable of being the quantum physics translation between the electromagnetic field from which all things emerge and biology. And so without water, there is no life. And so I'm excited when I make tea because I know I'm reigniting life within the water itself when it is remembered by a plant that was devoid of that water for a period of time. Isn't that interesting? Imagine how much the tea leaf misses water because it's been dehydrated. Think about how good it tastes to drink water when you have missed it for eight hours. How good that water tastes when you haven't had it. That tea has been parched. And the moment it touches the water that you give it, it remembers the whole journey. And probably more importantly, the water remembers the tea. And it remembers the leaves that it grew out of its heart. 
And so tea is a very unique way of embracing a molecular hug. It is the meeting of two beings that remember each other and remember their codependence and reliance on one another because they are the same thing. They are an expression of life. And for that, I love tea as a ritual to remind myself that I'm home no matter where I am, no matter whose home I share. And I love traveling uh, in people's homes these days instead of in hotels. As, and as I left the Oshawa tribe, that was my one of my big aha takeaways. Was like, what the hell am I doing living in isolation? Like, I know more people than maybe anybody I know. Why am I not diving in with all these people? And so now I invite myself into people's homes all the time because it's so much funner to wake up and hear kids that I've never met before running around in a household and you know get to see them do their rituals with their parents and do you know something there. And I learn from that. I get exposed to these things. And so I would invite all of you to realize that there is no need for you to go out and make lots of money and do lots of things. There is an opportunity instead for you to be engaged in community. And if we start a sharing economy rather than a competitive economy, we will find a much different you know, vitality within us. So those are some of the brushstrokes of where my life is going. Mm, I love that so much. I am exactly the same. I would much prefer to stay in someone's home than to stay in a hotel by myself. I just, the smell of a home, the sounds of the home, it's just so beautiful. And I'm often, you know, inviting myself to stay with people as well. So you don't have to invite yourself to stay with me. My door is always open to you and your family whenever you come to Australia. And if the beds are full, we will camp out in the lounge room. <laughs> That's right. I'll go on a hike with you no matter what. That's perfect. It sounds right. beautiful. Uh, is there anything else that you want to share? Any last parting words of wisdom or anything else that you wanted to talk about? I would invite all of you, I guess, to do one last thing, which is after you go outside, after you take off your headphones or unplug from whatever platform you're on right now, and you walk outside and follow the opportunity that Melissa's opened up to you to go breathe some real air, to hear your own truth, I would invite you to then, at some point this evening, go and look in the mirror and look past the superficial thing that you've come to believe is yourself. I want you to look into your own eyes, and I want you to look deep into your own wrinkles, uh, the smile wrinkles at the edges of your eyes or the wrinkled forehead that you may be concerned about in, in your social circles or whatnot. Look into those wrinkles and remember the intensity that brought those wrinkles about. Remember the intense joys, the intense sorrows, the traumas, perhaps. Look into your own face and realize you came here on purpose, and it's sitting right inside of you. And so let your mirror be a reminder tonight that there is a fire that is ready to burn within you and it needs to be sparked and it cannot be sparked until you recognize yourself. So start to stare into your own eyes. We have been told that if you look into a stranger's eyes for two minutes, you will fall in love. And I want to remind you that you are a stranger to yourself if you are any part of today's civilization. So stare into your own eyes for two minutes tonight. Acknowledge the feelings, acknowledge the sorrow, acknowledge the laughter. Acknowledge whatever bubbles up in you when you're staring into your own eyes and know that there's a lot of life ahead. A lot of life can happen in just an instant. And so let's get vital. Let's spend space time into an eternity together as we look towards a future that is not marked by extinction, but is one that is co-created inherently, intrinsically. And we have this great promise and, and opportunity to step into. Absolutely. Zach, you are such a beautiful, beautiful, big-hearted person. You are helping so many people. You are serving so many people by simply just being your truth. So how 
can we give back and serve you today? What can we do to give back to you? I just told you, I think, go look in the mirror. Find yourself and you'll find me. Find yourself and you're going to find what lights me up. Light yourself up and you'll find out what lights me up. But if you find yourself isolated and you are needing community to help you rise in your vibration, I think we do need to surround ourselves with high vibrational community for us to make our, our big jumps and accelerate our own growth. You can reach out. There's lots of ways to touch my educational platform. It's just my name, ZachBushMD.com. Lots of free content there for education across many different specters, from what our virus is to what is heart health and heart disease, what is major depression, what is uh, suicidality, what is addiction. All of these things lie on the Global Health Education Summit, uh, which is a quarterly event now. There's over 30 amazing panels that I've pulled together there for you that have just, you know, I think really enlightened the human condition in these different spaces. Um, you can also tune into Commune, which is a platform, Commune Education. I've created an, uh, eight courses there for you to do a deeper dive. Uh, those are relatively cheap, they're like 25 bucks a piece or something like that. Uh, coursework, or you can do the big eight-week program, journeyofintrinsichealth.com. And then as far as you know, starting to engage on that community level journey, we'll do that for you. But also, uh, farmsfootprint.us uh, will get you to the uh, US 501c3 nonprofit there, or farmsfootprint.org.au uh, for Australia there, and uh, get engaged with your farmers uh, through that pathway. And then uh, for the global community, if you want to get engaged, uh, Institute of Natural Law and Gov.org uh, will get you to that new body of information coming together to see how we can create that future that we all want for our children. Mm, beautiful. And we will link to all of that in the show notes. So if you want any of those links, just head to the show notes for that. Zach, I want to thank you so much for coming back on the show for a second time. I love you so much. I truly, I truly love you. And you're just such a beautiful, beautiful embodiment of light. So thank you so much for being here and for sharing with us today and for just being the example and the embodiment. I'm, I'm truly honored to have this time and space with you and so excited for you to come to Australia so we can have a meal and tea together. Absolutely. Well, thank you for having me on. I'm a very happy work in progress and I appreciate your contributions to bringing me further towards my goal of being more me. And uh, we look forward to reflecting each other back. I'll be in Australia later this year. So look forward to that journey. Oh, amazing. Thank you so much, Zach. I'm honored. Mm, guys, wasn't that amazing? Isn't he incredible? Oh my gosh, he's just one of my favorite people on this earth. I am so inspired. My mind is blown. I am lit up and I'm ready to go to my farmers and learn more about where my produce comes from. I'm ready to grow some herbs and to share more meals with the people I love and to hear their stories. I am so inspired. And if you are too, and if you got a lot from this conversation, please subscribe to the show and leave me a review on Apple Podcasts because that means that we can inspire and educate even more people together. And it also means that all of my episodes will pop up in your feed so that you never have to go searching for a new episode. And please, please, please come and tell me on Instagram at Melissa Ambrosini what you got from this episode. I absolutely love hearing from you. I love connecting with you. 
And I especially love hearing what you take away from each episode. So please come and share it with me. And before I go, I just wanted to say thank you so much for being here, for wanting to be the best, the healthiest, and the happiest version of yourself, and for showing up today for you. You rock. Now, if there's someone in your life that you can think of that would really benefit from this episode, please share it with them right now. You can take a screenshot, share it on your social media, email it to them, text it to them, do whatever you've got to do to get this in their ears. And until next time, my darling, don't forget that love is sexy, healthy is liberating, and wealthy isn't a dirty word.